Mindfulness Mode 473. Asking for help is critical and not being dishonest with yourself about how you're feeling, really being honest with yourself and then tell a friend, tell someone, tell anyone. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome back to Mindfulness Mode. Great to have you here on the show. And today, I'm just going to remind you that I'm going to be on a summit, an upcoming summit called the Inspirational Leadership Summit with Archana Shetty. And I talked about it on episode 470, but I want to remind you that you can get into that summit for free to listen to over 35 amazing leaders. So just go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash ILS, Inspirational Leadership Summit, to get in on that summit. Today I have a guest on who is talking about work-life balance, and I found it a pretty fascinating interview. She's written a book, which I'll tell you about. I think you'll enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Dana Look Arimoto. Hey, Mindful Tribe. Hey, have you ever wanted to nail work-life balance? Well, we're going to be talking about that today, and it might not be what you expect. I've got the wonderful author of this book, Stop Settling, Settle Smart, with me today, and it's Dana Look Arimaru. And Dana, hey, how are you? I'm really doing well. Thanks for having me, Bruce. My pleasure. My pleasure. So would you say, Dana, that today you are in mindfulness mode? I would. I'm just coming off of a 30-day workcation on Kauai, so I'm very mindful. I'm only a few days back. That sounds amazing. Well, let me share a little bit about you. Dana, look, Arimoto is the founder and CEO of Phoenix, a leadership and executive coaching company that helps corporations and leaders transform at an accelerated rate. She's an advisor, coach, speaker, mentor, and author of, she's the author of Stop Settling, like I already said, Stop Settling, Settle Smart. And she's evangelizing her new mindset, method, and movement to destroy the myth of work-life balance. So let's talk about that myth. Why is work-life balance a myth? Don't we want to just kind of keep our life in balance? Don't we want things to kind of all have their place and we put something over there and we put something else over here and everything just works beautifully like a well-oiled machine? Isn't that what we truly want, Dana? It is absolutely the BS we've been fed that life is a pie chart. So sure, it's what everybody wants. Is it achievable or sustainable is the question. And is it? Is it achievable? Well, I mean, I've seen people, I see people every day where life is just amazing. I see them on Facebook. I see them on Instagram. And wow, they have beautiful lives. Haven't you seen those people? Oh, you mean like the airbrushing scenario? Yeah, I've, I've seen it. I just don't buy it because... When you achieve this proverbial work-life balance nirvana, what happens is it's so momentary. And as you know, being an expert in mindfulness and the mode to get there, it's something that you don't even realize you're in and you're already off to the next race, like sprinting this 
hamster wheel inside of a marathon and it's not sustainable either. So we've been told we can have it all if we do it all. And the doing it all is the trouble, which is why we can't make everything equal like a little pie chart. So you don't think the answer is work harder, work harder, work harder, work harder, work harder, spend more hours, get up earlier, stay up later. You don't think any of that's right. I've tried. And I like to say, how many pneumonias does it take before you get it? But no, it really doesn't work. And in fact, it is the opposite of what I call harmonious integration, which is about conscious trade-offs. So you think we should sort of do less, like work less hard and just kind of take it easy and enjoy our lives. Is that kind of more what we're supposed to do? More of what you love and less of what you don't love and consciously, voluntarily prioritizing what actually counts for you as an individual without anybody else weighing in, which is really tough to do because everybody's got an opinion, especially your own family right? You should do this. You shouldn't do that. The media bombards us with all those beautiful pictures of what everybody's nirvana life looks like. And even people who are really publicly facing and famous will tell you it's not like that on the inside. That's the mask people wear. Well, what I'm learning more and more is that we really are all a lot more alike than we realize. We all have so many of the same problems, even though they don't look like the same problems to us. Does that make sense to you? Every day. I'm an executive coach. And regardless of male or female, age, position in the company, type of company, geographic location, socioeconomic background, people are people. And we all deal with very similar struggles, maybe on a different scale. And maybe situationally and relatively, they change. Yet, most things are pretty darn relatable. Well, I really love the tone of your book. You know, it's just so much fun to read. I picked it up, Stop Settling, Settle Smart. I thought, hmm, I wonder what this is about. Stop Settling, Settle Smart. And then it started to sink in as I read it, but it wasn't without some humor. Have you always had this sense of humor that you're able to just just put onto the page in subtle, fun ways? Well, I think I squelched it for a long time and it probably came out with a louder vibrato in the book because I was just being me. I was sort of flying my freak flag and saying what I wanted to say and speaking how my inside voice or the bubble above my head typically works. So, yeah, I also think if you think about comedians, for example, right, their own lives are fodder for their work and it makes them very funny and also very relatable And yet some of life is challenging and some of life is sad and some of life is um, not to be taken lightly. And so I think the humor also helps offset some of the really heavy content, which is part of the reality. And if you're going to be an authenticity based person, run your own human operating system with authenticity, you got to keep it real. And sometimes real is better with a laugh. I think a lot of times. Yeah. I, I, for a long time, I've said, I don't think we laugh enough. <laughs> for sure. Well, so work-life balance. If work-life balance is a myth, then how do we shift gears and really make life fun and still at the same time pull off the stuff that we need to be pulling off? 
Yeah, I mean, the first thing is to actually get conscious about where it is you might be settling. Most people are sleepwalking through life. I know I was, despite my success. So from the outside, you know, single mom for 11 years, corporate executive, doing a lot of global work, rescuing dogs, helping in the community, finding time to work out, spending time with friends. I looked like that woman who, quote unquote, had it all. And inside my own home and my own body, things were really crumbling. I was mm. really getting myself in a world of trouble because it was not sustainable, the pace I was leading, which is the opening to this discussion. So for your listeners, if you're running ragged, you know, sleeping less is not the answer, for goodness sakes. I mean, we can read Ariana Huffington's study on sleep, and we know for a fact, quantitative viably that we need seven or eight hours of sleep a night other than maybe 4% of the population. So that's not the answer. And uh, for a while, I thought outsourcing was part of the answer. So, you know, I'd have somebody come in to help clean or cook or take care of the children or walk the dogs. And it, it was like there was no end to the outsourcing because it was never enough to help me get what I really needed, which was consciousness around my priorities and then telling people, hey, take it or leave it. This is the way it's going to be. These things are critical for me. These are things I'm willing to settle on. These are things I'm not willing to settle on. And then living that way, which is fascinating once you make the shift. I love how you've woven little bits of mindfulness all through the book. What does mindfulness mean to you, Dana? That's a really good question. It means that I am conscious about my choices. And when I realize that I made a choice or I'm in a scenario that I wasn't conscious about, that I'm going to change that as soon as possible. My husband, second and final, free space on my bingo card. Hey, Darren, he always says to me, and I love this, you know how there's that quote that it's never too late to do the right thing? He always yes. says it's never too early. And that's made a real impact on my life the last five years we've been together. Ah, it's never too early to do the right thing. Well, you know, in your book, I loved how you have these fact versus fiction takeaways at the end of each chapter. That is just awesome. You know, you can you can read the chapter and then it's like reviewing it is so refreshing to be able to just review what you've put in there. How mindful did you have to be to put together this book? Yeah, very. I said to you when we were doing a pre-discussion, it took about 20 years of lessons learned and <laughs> yeah. mistakes made and coming up with tools and tips and tricks and traps for people to avoid. Um, and then the last two and a half years in earnest, really buckling down and doing the writing. And I realized when I, I looked at the plethora of work-life balance subjects and books and my inbox from alerts coming from Google and other search engines that there's not a lot of actionable, practical advice. And I wanted that to be the end to each chapter. So that fact versus fiction is a game I play with my kids and with my clients and with friends and it's great at parties. So, you know, fact versus fiction is the keeping it real part. And we tell ourselves a bunch of stuff that isn't true. And we learn and watch and emulate others that we see who are also 
not living in reality. And somehow we've got it all twisted around as if that's the way to go. So fact versus fiction is the keeping it real, practical, actionable part of the book. Yeah, I love the some of the questions you ask in this book. What kind of world would we create if we stopped withholding who we truly are and invited others to do the same? Now, what would that world look like? It'd be pretty different, wouldn't it, Dana? It would be so refreshing because we'd take the mask off. And I only touch lightly on that in the book. It's probably the subject for another book. We'll see. We do wear masks and some of us wear multiple masks. And if you are listening and you are either wearing a mask at work or at home or out in community or maybe wherever you spend the most time, maybe it's at church, maybe it's volunteering, remember that people don't get to know the real you and you're actually not lending your gifts to the universe or to the world if you're not yourself. You're not just cheating you or your family or your loved ones. You're actually cheating the world on missing out on you. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But I think a lot of people don't know how to be who they really are. Don't you think that's true? Yeah. I, I tried on lots of masks. I mean, some were really ugly. Mm-hmm. Some were downright Halloween-esque. <laughs> some were persona-based. You know, I for example, my last company, I wanted to be a CEO. I don't really know why, Bruce. Yeah. I guess I, I thought I should because I had done every other job and it was well, like, it sounds well, pretty cool. I'm in Silicon Valley and I'm a woman. I should be a CEO and break the ceiling and all that stuff. And then I became a CEO and I was like, oh, I don't want that at all. I don't know what I was thinking. Like, Is it just a lot of problems, a lot of hassles? (laughs) The buck stops here. It's lonely at the top and all that jazz. So Yeah. yeah, it wasn't what I thought. And it was a good friend of mine that actually took over as CEO of my last company. I talk about her in the book. We're very dear friends. Mm -hmm. We've known each other a decade. She said to me, you're more of a chief people officer type than a CEO. And at first I was sort of pissed. I was like, that is not nice. What is she talking about? And then I realized she was right because I was always running operations and leading companies with and through people. It was all about the team. It was never really about the other stuff. And in fact, I wasn't very good at the other stuff. And so we really do need to embrace who we are and take the mask off. Yeah, we really do. There's no doubt about that. Well, speaking of taking the mask off, what were you like as a kid, Dana? When you were a little girl, what were you like? Were you kind of like busy controlling people and starting projects and doing all that kind of stuff? How long is this show? Uh, (laughs) Uh, interesting. I just told this story to someone. I can't remember who it was. I was a doormat until I was 20. Oh, really? Yeah. I was really like, let me solve everybody's problems. Let me bring everyone to the middle. Let me help everybody because, you know, I'm like Mother Teresa. And clearly I was brought to this world to help people communicate. Not so popular when you're a teenage girl. Uh, I also was a dancer. So ballet was my salvation and it was very artistic and theatrical and I could express myself. There was musicality. It was my escape from my own issues in my own life growing up and also my salvation. So I was complex. I was also on the academic decathlon. So a little nerdy goes a long way, always have been. So I had this multifaceted life even back then. But as a person, I didn't really have a voice and I found myself left out and being walked on and being hurt all the time. And then something happened after a freshman year in college and I found my voice. Wow. And you never looked back, did you? (laughs) Not, no, because it's kind of like this, Bruce, once you're awake, 
you don't want to go back to sleep. Yeah. Settlesmart.com, Mindful Tribe. That's where Dana's found. Go to settlesmart.com and check out her website, but you can also check out her social media. Dana, look, Animoto, and I want to make sure I get that right, Animoto. And it's D-A-N-A-L-O-O-K-A-N-I-N. M-O-T-O. So on Facebook and Instagram, you'll find her there. Dana, look, Animoto. Oh, Aramoto. Whoops. It's an R, not an, an N. R. And it's so easily mistaken. So Check no your glasses, worries. Bruce. Aramoto. Dana, look, Aramoto. <laughs> yeah, well, it's really cool how you've You've taken this topic and you just dig right into it in your book and you talk about all the different aspects and you spend quite a bit of time talking about relationships because that's really, as you've already said, one of your areas of expertise. How can we improve our relationships? I mean, so many lonely, lonely people in the world today who were surrounded by people, but we're lonely. What's the yeah. answer? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I like to remind people, and this is important for me, that we're not alone. We're just not. And sometimes it's reaching out and asking, and it could be one person. We don't need to have 25 best friends. And if you talk to people in Europe, for some reason, they think that's hilarious. They're like, you have 25 best friends? How is everyone your bestie? It's one or two. So really having even one close person to communicate with, to share with, to help hold you accountable, to be your authentic self with is so critical. And reaching out and asking, people are shy about asking for what they need or want, even in friendships. So that's on one hand. The other hand, and as you know, I talk about this a lot in the book, which was really my own journey is to get rid of toxic relationships. Because I don't know about your, what do you call them? Mindful tribe? Mindful tribe, yes. Mindful tribe, so cool. The mindful tribe, you if you have too many toxic relationships, you may find that it's really hard to have the good one or two authentic relationships or friendships or partnerships. And so out with the negative and in with the positive. And it's the same thing with the mask, right? So getting rid of toxic relationships, probably one of the most challenging things I've ever had to do. And it's come up throughout my life. And not just with with girlfriends, with boyfriends, with uh, volunteerism, with clients. It's no bueno. Like you've just, you got to dump the toxic relationships. And the longer you wait, the harder it is. And sometimes it's better to just, you know, rip the bandaid off. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I want to ask you a a question about the topic of bullying. I've worked in that field for a long time. Do you have a story you can share with us? Maybe you were bullied. Maybe you were a bully. I don't know. A situation where mindfulness would have made a difference. Gosh, I was bullied. And actually, one of my daughters in kindergarten was a bully. So (laughs) (laughs) she will not want to listen to this. You get to pick. It's your show. Well, let's hear about your daughter. How did you deal with that? That's tough when your daughter is in in kindergarten, isn't it? Really tough. And a couple of years later, her older sister was bullied. So it's uh-huh. a very interesting bullying circle. I hadn't really thought about it. So this is really provocative. So she was only five. So it wasn't, you know, severe or something really threatening. Right. However, it was a really kind of 
seeking negative attention, like most bullies situation and really being very assertive, borderline aggressive on the playground with other kids and back to this friendship and relationship scenario, just not really knowing how to approach people to get close because she's very dominant. She's a driver. She's a leader. You know, all the things we look for in our young women going forward as a young kid in kindergarten was actually not great. And so there was a wonderful counselor at the school who said, I'd love to have her in our play group. And I thought, oh, what a great idea. And she'd come home, you know, with different things she was coloring or words that she was circling or discussion topics they were having about where she was in the sequence of relationships. And she always had herself on the top of the mountain. So it was very interesting. And she literally was told, like, you realize you don't follow at all. You only lead. And there's no sharing. There's no middle. There's no compromise. And she came home a couple weeks into this playgroup. And she said, that's not a playgroup, you know, that's for bullies. (laughs) And she was the only girl with a bunch of boys, rough and tumble. And she was the youngest by a bunch of years. So it was pretty interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it's been interesting to watch as she's grown a bit older. She's more conscious. We still talk about that play group and she has other words for it, which I won't use. And uh, we do. We talk about it. She's conscious of it. She still struggles with it because her, you know, number one go to is dominance, which is so interesting since, you know, before when I was younger, up until I was 20, I was the opposite. I was much more passive. And now people will say, well, she's just like you now. And I'm very clear and I'm very direct and I'm very radically candid. I wouldn't say by any means I'm a bully. So it's interesting, the interpretation, I guess, or the adaptation of seeing a strong mom versus being a bully, which uh, horrifies me. I mean, when I ran teams and companies, I had an absolute zero gossip, zero drama, zero tolerance on anything remotely related to, you know, anything like bullying or harassment. And I've done a lot of coaching and training on anti-harassment. So it's pretty interesting. So at this point in your life, Dana, are you still doing a lot of coaching? Are you doing live events? Tell us what your days look like nowadays. Yeah, uh, about 50% of the time I'm coaching, either virtual or live, one-on-one or with teams. About 25% of the time I'm speaking either podcasts or webinars or stand-up speaking, which I love. The one-to-many approach is always helpful when you're trying to get a message out. And then the rest of the time, I'm actually working on other writing and other aspirations. I sit on some advisory boards where I'm trying to affect the way we work, and it's incredibly rewarding. Oh, it must be fun. What are some of the changes you've seen as you've you've been coaching people for some time? So over the last 10 or 15 years, what has the shift been? What are people, how are people's problems changing and how are they, they kind of evolving as they uh, move forward in this day and age? Well, unfortunately, things have got uh, gotten more complex for sure. The problems are similar, but they're more complex. And so people are having to make really tough decisions and make very clear trade-offs and reprioritize the way they work and how people interact within their companies and how they interact within their own teams. So I've seen a lot of transformational change 
in relation to people being very clear about what will work and what will not and what are deal breakers and what are boundaries. So lots and lots of stuff there. I've also seen people really embracing authenticity as a differentiation for themselves and their company and getting out of sort of Machiavellian top-down leadership approaches, which I've worked in companies like that. And instead, I've really worked with a lot of what we would call servant leaders who are clearly about hearts and minds and getting their arms around their talent and their teams and making an impact for their people and their own lives, um, not just about the almighty dollar. It's funny because I spent 23 years in staffing and recruitment and what's sometimes known as human capital. And the human is taken out of the capital equation a lot of the time by the financiers or the cap venture capitalists or the boards. And of course, they're they're there to make money and we get that. But when you take the human out of human capital, I like to say spirit plus commerce equals good. It doesn't have a successful ending. We know that today the most successful leaders and companies embrace the human component because it's the biggest part of your company. And it's certainly the biggest line item on your budget. So I've seen great shifts there. I'm really proud of people that are leading from their heart, not just their head and not just their wallet. That's certainly what we need more of. That's for sure. So what does meditation look like in your life? Do you meditate every day? Epic fail. I have tried every way to Sunday, every app, every guru. I've gone to retreats. It is so hard for me to quiet my mind. So what point are you at now? Do you just, you just chill and you don't worry about it or are you still trying to do it or what? Sometimes I will listen to either TEDx type talks or certain spiritual leaders that I love and respect whose voices are very calming. And so sometimes in the morning before I even get out of bed, I'll listen to something, something motivational or inspirational. That's about as far as I've been able to get, Bruce. Well, you seem like a very calm person, actually. And so, you know, like you just, you seem very mindful. You seem very relaxed and, you know, maybe, maybe doing those forms of meditation is just not for you. Maybe meditation takes a very different form in your life that you're not even realizing. That's true. And it's interesting. I pet my dogs. I have three Mm -hmm. rescue dogs. I've always had rescue dogs. And I pet them almost every morning before I get started at work. And we know, you know, scientifically that this is very calming. We see the influx of therapy dogs and bring your dog to work day. And I get to work with my three dogs almost every day. So that might be part of my meditative process. Wow, that's great. Um, You know, depression is such a problem these days. And one of the things you talked about in your book was about depression and about depression in new mothers is between 10 to 20%. What can we do about this depression problem? Yeah, it's complex. We must ask for help again. And that's so hard to do, especially when you're not in a good mental state. We have to tell somebody because the most dangerous thing you can do, and that's what happened for me, I hadn't dealt with depression before I had my first daughter. And when it hit, it hit hard. And I had gone back to work after eight weeks, which was not a great choice. But again, I didn't really have any frame of reference. I just thought I was answering the call of corporate America, come back to work. 
and it was really jarring. So asking for help is critical and not being dishonest with yourself about how you're feeling, really being honest with yourself and then tell a friend, tell someone, tell anyone one person again that can help you find that voice because it's it's just dangerous if you're keeping it all inside and shoving it all down. Yeah, it sure is dangerous. Yeah. And uh I I think that women are better at relating and sharing and, and reaching out to each other a lot of times than men are. And I think that there's a movement to help men, you know, become more comfortable at sharing. We've got yeah. a long way to go. Yeah, it's the whole Brene Brown vulnerability, right. authenticity, that whole um, scenario. I, I'm such a fan of being vulnerable in order to be authentic and not simply being transparent. Transparent is actually not enough. You have to show your heart. You have to show who you are. And I have about 60% of my coaching clients who are men and 40% who are women, interestingly enough. That is. And most of them are executives. So again, that's a bit of a reflection of today's society and we have more male CEOs than female CEOs. And yet some of the women also struggle with it. I know I did, especially, you know, if you're labeled type A overachiever workaholic, I would have labeled myself that way. We aren't taught and we haven't seen that it's okay to share your authentic self. And so like you said earlier, my humor I wasn't that funny at work. I just wouldn't allow it because, you know, I wouldn't want them to see that I had this other quirky side instead of this corporate mold side that I thought they wanted to see. And I thought it would get in my way. And in fact, it might have helped me clear the way. And if not, who cares? Que sera, sera. But, you know, takes time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Dana, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person that has helped you with mindfulness in your life? My mentor, Ron Mester, who was my boss for six years. Okay. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's made them more accessible. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. It's huge. And when I'm not breathing, I know it. Then I do something about it. Get that down into your belly, everybody, because it makes a massive difference. It sure does. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? It might surprise you, but I love Dan Pink's A Whole New Mind because it really does talk about science and the brain. And I think it's very misunderstood how the left and right brain work. And, you know, there's this whole other component to the reptilian brain and the creature brain. So I think it's very helpful to understand how your brain works when you're being mindful, even though that's for some people more about spiritual practice. I think it also is helpful to have science and art together. Yeah, I would agree with that. Can you recommend any kind of an app that can help with mindfulness? I'm trying to think of the name of the app someone sent me that I did not do well with for meditation, but I think thousands of people do. 10% happier. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't work well for you. Though. No. <laughs> so you were not 10% happier. <laughs> no, but I love the imagery and I love that it sent me messages. I think I'm happy, to be honest, but it's, I taken, think you are too. it's taken 51 years to get here, we'll just say. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, I think you're definitely happy. It's been so much fun talking to you. And your book, like I said, is really fun to read and filled with wisdom. Stop settling, settle smart. Rethinking work-life balance. Redesign your busy life. Yes. Stop settling. So go to settlesmart.com. Visit social media. You'll find Dana Look Arimoto, Arimoto at Facebook and uh, Instagram. And on Twitter, you are Dana to the fifth. That's it. Yeah. Dana, it's been so much fun talking about all this today. I've really enjoyed it. Is there any other way we should be reaching out to you? Feel free to email me at answers at lookarimoto.com. And there's a free quiz on the website to help you figure out whether you're settling and where you're settling. All right. Well, I'll put all that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. And Dana, thanks again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. Remember to sign up for the free online summit, the Inspirational Leadership Summit. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash I-L-S, Inspirational Leadership Summit. So many terrific interviews, a science-based look at leadership in today's world. The world's most respected thought leaders and experts reveal strategies on how to become an inspirational leader achieve health, happiness, and success. This summit starts November 5th, goes November 5th to the 7th with over 35 speakers, including me, yours truly. So exciting to be on the summit. So remember, Mindful Tribe, use what we learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode 